The New Testament reading is from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This fall we've been using the Enneagram typology to talk about spiritual health in sort of a non-traditional way to kind of um, unearth or discover some of the hurdles that we have individually to um, spiritual flourishing and try to identify things that we might not notice about ourselves otherwise. And we've come to the end of that. Um, so for those of you that have, this has been a long slog, hooray. Those want more, sorry, but we'll maybe try to blog a little bit about it because I was thinking this week that nine are uh, in town is kind of a nine church, um, but I didn't know how to put that into the sermon, so I'll maybe write something about that later. But a church full of nines would be the most chill place that you could imagine. It would be a very happy place, lots of smiles. Um, I've read a number of people that have uh, referenced the dude from Big Lebowski being kind of a nine. He's just very chill. He just doesn't get, you know, the, the who is it, the, the nihilist. They have to, like, enter into his home to get him riled up. He's just kind of, just lets the world do its thing. Nines are really easy to be with, and nines are called peacemakers. Now, in 1996, uh, a revolutionary idea for a trial court emerged in South Africa at the end of apartheid. It was called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It was really the first of its kind in modern history, and it was using restorative rather than retributive justice to address the, the gross human rights violations uh, that had been experienced during the conflict. And victims of the conflict, victims of oppression, of hatred, victims of violence, were given a voice to tell their stories, and their testimony was broadcast nationally across South Africa. At the same time, perpetrators could offer truth and confession in return for amnesty. 
And over seven years, from 1996 to 2003, some 2,000 people bore witness to apartheid in personal testimony. Victims telling stories of what had been done to them, and perpetrators confessing what they had done, sometimes directly to family members of people that they had murdered. You see, there was a very steep cost to peace in South Africa after apartheid. The commission was led by, among others, uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, um, who I believe has a panel on the forgiveness wall in here. And he says this, forgiving and being reconciled are not about pretending that things are other than they are. True reconciliation or true peace, parenthetically, exposes the awfulness, the abuse, the pain, the degradation, the truth. Reconciliation means taking what happened seriously and not minimizing it drawing out the sting in the memory that threatens to poison our entire existence. Nines, according to the Enneagram typology, are known as peacemakers. But they're also talked about as needing to avoid. That nines have a high need to avoid. Well, how is it that these two things go together, peacemaking and avoidance. Well, as I said at the beginning, nines are some of the most easygoing people that you'll ever meet. They're easy to work with because they're not controlling. They're, they're sort of go-with-the-flow people. They're, they seldom meddle. They seldom insert themselves into your business. But as with other, all the other numbers, this positive aspect has a bit of a dark side. The motivation you see between letting you be you and giving you space isn't necessarily always altruistic. It can be an avoidance strategy. They would rather do just about anything than to enter into conflict and certainly not to instigate conflict, to be forced to name what is bothering them and to tell you about it and to unpack that for you. They need an anger translator. If any of you have seen Key and Peele, Luther was Obama, no drama Obama's anger translator. You can watch that episode later. Nines need an anger translator because they would rather just be chill. They'd rather just be the dude. So if eights from last week, if you remember, can be a challenge to live with, to work with, because they sometimes can lack a filter, they can lack diplomacy, Nines can be a challenge to live with because you're never really sure what they think. They're never really, you're never really sure if they're telling you the truth. Can anyone really be this chill? Are they not noticing what's going on around us? How can they operate at that level of just being smooth and relaxed when all of this chaos is happening? They rarely upset people. They rarely throw an organization off kilter by speaking up. And this lack of passion to engage, this lack of willingness to push back or challenge or be contrarian can feel like just a, a sort of sleepy cynicism because what's behind that is often this belief that their opinion doesn't really, really matter that it's not going to change anything. Just let the company, let the world, let the relationship just kind of be what it is. 
And so there's this cynicism that results in a kind of avoidance. It's rare that nines are very passionate about a specific cause. They're not your typical crusaders or activists. They're not your, I got to change the world types. But they're peacekeepers. But you see, peacekeeping is very different than peacemaking. You've probably seen on the news in conflict zones, uh, the UN soldiers with the blue hats come in. We call them peacekeepers, and they're there to maintain sort of an uneasy ceasefire or to make sure that an election doesn't devolve into violence. They're there to keep the peace. You've also probably seen images of civil rights uh, movement workers that were leaders that were marching into Selma, Montgomery, Birmingham. It's a very different kind of approach to peace because you see they're coming in not to quell unrest, but they're coming in to cause it. They're protesting. They're antagonizing against a corrupt, unjust system, an unrighteous system. And you see, both of these are necessary but they're not the same. Peacekeeping doesn't necessarily and doesn't often change anything structurally about what's happening. It doesn't address the underlying injustice. It just keeps people from being hurt. Peacemaking actually pursues God's righteousness in a structural way, in a social way, in a relational way. It pursues His justice. In our gospel reading, verse 9, said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Peacemakers and persecution. I never really noticed the order in quite that way until studying this week. And this connection may be difficult to see because in an American individualistic context, we tend to think of righteousness as our sort of individual piety. Righteousness is what I pursue in my sanctification process as I grow to conform more to Christ's image. And part of that is true, but it's not an individual piety Righteousness in Jesus' teaching is far more robust. It's far more public. It's far more relational. It's not an exact synonym with justice, but righteousness and justice are cognates. Now see, you rarely get persecuted for just living a pious life, for just living a moral life. Martin Luther King could have continued preaching at Dexter Baptist Church in Montgomery for as long as he wanted. And if he talked about heaven and individual piety, and he talked about Jesus being a spiritual pathway, he could have lived a long and happy and probably wealthy life. But he chose something different. He chose to pursue public justice, public righteousness, God's, that is, God's desired state of affairs. God's uncompromising peace, and therefore there was persecution. Nines avoid 
persecution by avoiding conflict. But a lack of conflict, a lack of hostilities, is not the same thing as peace. That's just a truce. People, there are people who are married for 40, 50 years who can't stand each other. And the reason they're still married is that they have avoided dealing with the significant issues of conflict and resentment in their lives. Thanksgiving tables this week may be civil because certain topics or certain instances of shared history or conflict aren't brought out into the open. This is a, a civil table, and that's not a bad thing, but don't mistake that for biblical peace. Jesus says peace and righteousness, peace and justice. And these two things don't coexist easily. They don't coexist naturally. They must be fought for. They must be pushed together. They must be planted and cultivated in order to grow together. You see, what happens at that Thanksgiving table when one member of the family is no longer happy about the ceasefire, is no longer content to pretend that everything is okay and just avoid topics that are going to cause disruption. Typically, they're viewed as a threat to peace. But they're not, are they? They're not necessarily a threat to the peace. Now, they could have bad motives and they could just be wanting to poke someone. But just because someone doesn't obey the ceasefire and keep civility doesn't make them an enemy to peace, it makes them an enemy to the truce, or perhaps an enemy to pretense. They may be the only one at the table who's willing to actually pursue peace. And what happens is that then they are accused, they are opposed, they are shunned because they've upset the equilibrium. Everyone has just grown tolerant of a certain level of intimacy in the family. Or in a relational situation, a marriage, it may take a friend, a counselor, a pastor to say, what is going on between here? We're not going to repress it any longer. We're not going to ignore it any longer. We're not going to merely tolerate one another so that you can stay married. We're going to sit here and we're going to work on this until the truth comes out until perhaps you get angry. And strangely, that might be what is needed in that situation because they have repressed the truth, they've repressed their own feelings, their own wants for so long that this marriage is really just on paper. It's not really a marriage. And what happens when the counselor, the pastor, the therapist pushes on that is one or both parties get mad and get angry and often they leave because everyone likes to think about reconciliation. It sounds like a beautiful term, a wonderful thing, but it's easier to talk about than to work on. It's easier to conceptualize than to really put it in practice. Reconciliation often doesn't work because one party wants just merely an end to the hostility. They want peacekeeping, not peacemaking. So we need to be careful about labeling nines 
If you're a nine or the nine in you, this is my peacemaking aspect, or as a nine, I'm a peacemaker. We need to be careful with our terms because what they really might be doing, what you or I might be doing, is just keeping the peace by being inoffensive, by letting sleeping dogs lie. And you see how there's some cynical sleepiness to that? I just don't want to wake up this dog because this is going to be uncomfortable. I don't think it's going to get better, so I'm just going to let it lie. Unhealthy nines might be easy to get along with because they're choosing to sit on their anger rather than address it. Now, Paul has a different idea in our second reading, a different idea of peace. And he says in verse 14, for he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. I'm a little bit fascinated by magnets. If you think about how magical they are, you've got these two pieces of ferrous material that won't go together if they're positive and positive and are attracted powerfully to one another if you flip it around. It's like this magical invisible force. And if you do flip them around and it's positive to positive, pushing those together is like pushing together righteousness and peace. They don't go together without some level of exertion. Peacemaking, according to Paul, instigates reconciliation. Peacemaking, or peace, according to Paul, is not merely the cessation of hostility or the maintaining of an an uneasy truth, but it's actually changing the polarity to where things begin to attract rather than are repulsed. Paul says his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He puts to death two things here, two ways that the cross comes to bear upon the situation. There is broken relationships between Jew and Gentile that Paul claims that the cross begins to put an end to that hostility, at least in theory. And then secondly, the cross puts an end to this estrangement between God's people from Himself. So there's this social justice component and there's a spiritual righteousness component that the cross deals with at the very same time. And to do this, he comes preaching what? Get this, he comes preaching peace. Well, the cross doesn't look like peace at all. The cross is the very opposite of peace. The cross looks like death. But you see, true reconciliation always involves a form of death. In order to have reconciliation, in order to have true peace, our demand to be right has to die. Our demand to be recompensed has to die. Our demand to have retribution has to die. 
You see, the victims and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, according to all matter, manners of Western justice, would have had every right to come and demand retribution. And that demand had to die in order to have peace in South Africa according to the way that they chose to pursue it. Our demand to stay unchanged also has to die. You see, reconciliation, forgiveness always feels like death because it requires something to die. Go read any of those panels. There is an aspect of death in the form of cost in each of them. His purpose was to make peace, make peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, bringing peace through death. So for all of us who are nines, for the nines in all of us, what we have to remember, friends, is that real peace is costly. Real peace often requires some form of death for it to exist. It is hard, hard, hard work. It takes assertion. It takes instigation. It takes getting out of our comfortable routine and upsetting the equilibrium and trusting that the relationship can withstand that or the relationship needs sort of a relaunch, a restart. Christ's example really compels us not to just settle into our relationships, but to have the courage to not settle for relational truths or relational inertia. God doesn't settle, you see, for relational inertia or just a truce. You see, He is magnetized to us even when we are not magnetized to Him, even when we might be repulsed by Him, He is magnetized to us. He is always moving towards and instigating reconciliation. Not a ceasefire, but true reconciliation. And this is what the cross does. And if you open yourself up to it, it changes, you see, your polarity. It gets rid of that resistance to God's instigation of reconciliation, and you find yourself beginning to be attracted to it, where you want what God is offering, where you want His peace to infiltrate all of your relationships, where you ask for the courage to encounter the cost, to address those parts of you that are still resistant to Him, even after He changes your polarity. This is difficult. It's always costly because it involves a death. But what the cross does is it invites us to move towards a God who is not coming coercively, who is not making a shotgun marriage and forcing the relationship, but He comes with a cross. He dies to forgive you. He dies to change your polarity. He dies to give you the courage to work towards that same sort of inversion of polarity in your relationships. And as we move towards God, as we move towards peace, we're at the same time moving towards our own integration 
We're moving towards our own freedom because we're moving towards truth. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would instigate forgiveness and reconciliation in all of us. And if there are things within this church where people are at odds with one another, where there just seems to be some invisible force that has settled in that is keeping people apart, I pray that one or both of them would have the courage to address it, to name it, and to ask that what we see here in this table comes to bear upon the relational antagonism that has settled in. Father, I pray that if there is uh, any sort of unpeace in this church, that you would deal with it, and that, Father, as we leave these walls, that we would begin to have the courage to address those areas of conflict, those areas of inertia in all of our relationships, marriage, family, roommate, coworker. Father, give us courage because we have seen the courage of Jesus to come and instigate peace on our behalf, and we pray in His name. Amen.